Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, you'll remember we were there last week and we talked about a pair of verses that we're now going to cover again in kind of a bigger context to see their meaning. So we're in Jeremiah chapter 17 and we're beginning in verse 5. Hear now God's word. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are very acutely aware that we have sick, self-deceived hearts within us. How can we do any of this? How can we come and worship? How can we preach? How can we hear preaching? How can we sing songs to you and confess sins, knowing that deep inside of us, our hearts are lying to us? They cannot be trusted. Father, deliver us, we pray. Father, show us the way, we pray. Father, give us clarity. We need you this morning more than we ever have. And so we ask for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, our passage is all about deceptive hearts. And I know that there is a great opening illustration out there somewhere, something about following your heart, something about being the best you you can be. I don't know what it is, like a Disney montage or something, and we could take the thing and we could set it on the table like a a crystal vase, and then we could take Jeremiah 17 and we could just smash the thing to pieces, right? That illustration is out there somewhere. I couldn't find it this week. I couldn't make the Disney montage. So we're going to dive right into this passage and understand what's happening in these six verses. Where, where are we going here? What is the prophet talking about? If I could summarize this passage in three simple sentences that will then become our three points, it would be this. The goal is clear. The heart is not the Lord will make it so. The goal is clear. The heart is not, the Lord will make it so. The goal for us and for our lives is absolutely clear. It's clear for us. Now, hands down, my favorite commercials in the world are for light beer. I mean, I'm just a sucker for light beer commercials. I love them. I love all of them. Bud Light, Michelob Light, Miller Light. I just, I enjoy watching light beer commercials because you have these beautiful, thin, racially diverse groups of friends up on a rooftop having a party, and they're just enjoying life. And I feel like the only way from me to there and what they're enjoying is to change what I'm drinking. 
But trust me, y'all, there have been low moments in my life where I have drank light beer and it has done none of those things for me. I'm still in the same place with the same people. Regardless of that, advertisers understand what is implicit in this passage, and that is the influential power of threat and promise. They get that there's a place to explain data, there's a place to rattle off facts, but more than anything, what influences us is getting a vision of a threat and a promise. Show me where I'm going, show me what this leads to. They get what the prophet gets in Jeremiah 17. And so verses five through eight, they really give us a picture of a threat and a picture of a promise. Look at verses five and six. These are the threat of a person who rejects God. Or as Jeremiah says more pointedly in this passage, the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. That means for all the wealth, for all the fame, for all the attention that a person might win in this world without God, Beneath that thin veneer of success, they are a desert-dwelling shrub lost in an uninhabited salt land, and they will ultimately not see any good come. That's a very blunt, stark picture of the man who trusts in man. A while ago, I saw a documentary of a very successful real estate mogul. He was one of the most successful men in the nation. And the documentary kind of follows his rise to power. At the time, he is building one of the biggest timeshares in Las Vegas. And he is laying the foundation for what would have been the largest single family home in America. The man is wealthy and successful beyond our wildest dreams. You watch the, narc, the, the narrative arc of the documentary rise and then fall, and you end with this man alone in his house, and it's this cavernous room that he's sitting in. He's got legal documents stacked all the way to the ceiling. He's completely estranged from his family and not on speaking terms with them, and he's watching the movie Shrek. That's what you see from over his shoulder. If you're a middle-aged man watching the movie Shrek by yourself, estranged from your family, you are in the uninhabited salt land of Jeremiah 17. I mean, that's the low. You have seen where this thing is headed. That's a threat. The Bible gives us a threat, unashamedly presents it to us, and threatens you and I, and says, this is what happens to the man who trusts in man. This is a threat. This is a promise. This will happen to you. You go that way, and this is what you find. Well, no sooner do we get this threat than we also get a picture of this promise that is in store for those of us who trust in God. Verses 7 through 8. We studied this last week. The picture of promise is that if you trust in God, you are like a tree who is being planted by streams of water. You're being fed and cared for, and God will bear fruit even in suffering. 
There's nothing unclear about the goal here, right? It's painted in such stark terms that the question falls on us, but it's not even a trick question. Who do you want to be? Do you want to be, number one, the man who trusts in man, who puts his trust in his flesh? Or do you want to be, number two, the person who trusts in the Lord? You read these four verses, it's not a trick question. I aspire to the one who trusts in the Lord. So the goal for us is absolutely clear. It is crystal clear. We know the direction that we want our lives to head, but there's a catch. The goal is clear, but the heart is not. Look at verse 9. This is probably the most famous or infamous line in Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, when you and I talk about our hearts, I think we mostly mean feelings today. That's how we use hearts. So if I text you, I heart you, you know I'm not saying I'm thinking about you. You know I mean I love you. The heart is the seat of my affections. I love you. But it's very different in the Hebrew worldview because in their worldview, when they hear these words, the heart is not the seat of emotions, but it's almost like what we consider the mind to be. The heart in the Hebrew world is the decision maker. It's the command center. It dictates what we think, what we do, who we are. So that's what's happening in our hearts in verse 9. But then in verse 10, my ESV Bible says that the Lord searches the hearts and then he tests the mind. Now, I don't know if your Bible has what my Bible has, but there's a footnote here, and I look at the bottom for what mind really means, and actually the Hebrew word that's being used here is your kidney. He's testing your heart, and he's testing your kidneys. Many people think that Israel thought that it was actually the kidneys and not the heart that was the seat of our emotions or our affections. So an Israelite would have texted, I kidney you. I love you. That's what I I care for you. So you got this. The heart is really like the mind. The kidney is really like the heart. But even if you forget the Hebrew worldview anatomy lesson and which organ is connected to which function, if you're totally lost on that and you didn't get it down in your bullet journal, that's okay because the point is exactly the same. The whole of us is sick. It is sick And left to ourselves, our hearts, they're lying to us. Our minds are confused. You and I are having kidney failure. Now that puts us in a really tight spot as those who aspire to follow the Lord because we're being asked to trust the Lord with organs that are not trustworthy. I'm trying to marshal my mind and my heart and my kidneys and my inner being to trust in the Lord, but at the very same time, I learn that these things are not entirely trustworthy. I have to use something that can't be trusted to move towards something that God is calling me to. That's a difficult thing to reconcile, but before we can even do that and before we can even understand how that works, we need to come to grips with just how desperate the situation is. I imagine that if I took a poll of this room, every single one of us would agree that our hearts are in some measure deceptive. 
right? Everyone would agree that our hearts deceive us. Would anybody not agree with that and say my heart is completely honest in all ways? Not a single person. I think we would all agree to that, but I don't think there's a single person in this room, myself included, who quite knows the depths to which our hearts are lying to us. We know they're liars, we just don't know how deep that deception actually goes. Now, we're not going to get to the bottom of our hearts in the next 10 minutes, but I thought I'd just grab a hold of one strand and tease it out a little bit so we can kind of understand the playing field and the fact that what we feel and what we sense and what we see from our hearts is not always true. It can really deceive us. I was talking to a couple of friends about this about the desire in the Christian life to pursue holiness and how oftentimes when we think about holiness, we think about our behavior, like what we do. We think about behavior modification and not so much about the motives behind the behavior. So here's what I mean. If I'm struggling in my life with anger, I tend to focus on that behavior. I'm thinking about myself as an angry person and I'm thinking about solving uh, anger in my life. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to memorize verses about being quiet and calm and still before the Lord. I'm going to talk to my accountability partner and I'm going to tell them the times that I raised my voice to another person. When I go an entire week without lashing out at somebody else, I'm going to celebrate that because I see that as a good thing in my life. Now, let me be crystal clear. Behavior is absolutely important. Those are good things, good practices. They do good work. But if that's the only thing we're doing... We're not touching something that is happening far deeper inside of us. The Bible is describing sin like a plant. It's got roots that go deep down into our hearts. It grows up in this stalk. It spreads out into branches. And at the very tip of those branches, we see budding in our lives the bad fruit of sin. I see that fruit and I see the fruit of anger but it is only the tip of a branch. Anger isn't born in the five seconds it takes my kid to spill his milk. That's just the bad fruit that is growing on the end of the branch. That anger, it comes from deep down inside of me. It comes from places of entitlement and insecurity. It festers in my heart in those places, and it's looking for an excuse to come out. That split-second decision to raise my voice at the dinner table is actually years in the making. That's deep to understand our hearts quite in that way. And so here's the scary thing. It's possible to manage and modify outward behavior and never touch what's going on deep inside of my heart. I can get to a place in my life where I can manage my anger or at least outbursts of anger and I never do that again and yet I have not even begun to touch entitlement and insecurity in my heart. You'll never see an outburst again but I am going to find other ways to express what is in my heart. 
Friends, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can possibly understand it? Anger is not about emotions. Uh, Lust is not about sex, eating disorders. They're not about food. Materialism is not about money. How can we fight an enemy we can't see? How can we begin to counteract urges that are coming from murky places? How can we fight this enemy where we cut off one head and ten grow in its place? Wretched man that I am, Paul prayed, who will save me from this body of death? I've got a body of death. Who's going to save me from that? The goal is clear. The heart is not. It deceives us. But the Lord will make it so. Look at verse 10. When I first read verse 10, it sounds like a threat and not a relief. Listen to it. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Who who reads that as a relief today? That's just great. I'm playing a game that I cannot possibly win. I know it's expected of me, but then I know that my heart and my mind and my kidneys are betraying me. And so when the Lord comes to look at the deepest parts of me to judge my works, I am absolutely doomed before him. He's going to find sick self-deception. I'm going to be over here piddling with behavior modification and he's coming to strike me at the core of my motives. I am absolutely doomed if I stand in judgment before God and am weighed according to my deeds. That's the first thought that comes to my mind when I read verse 10. But hang on a minute. Am I so fragile and mistrusting of the Lord that one verse sends me running? Like the moment I hear these things, I begin to mistrust what he's saying to me. It's kind of like when my wife comes to me during the week and she says very graciously, sweetie, would you remember to put the toilet seat down when you're done? And I hear that and I snap And I say, you're always correcting me. I can't do anything right in this house. Anything I do is not good enough for you. And it's like, whoa, are we still talking about the toilet seat or do we need to talk about something else? Our knee-jerk reaction is to mistrust God. That's kind of our stance with God. We're waiting for an excuse to prove that we were right all along. We're waiting for something to happen. I lose my car keys and I see, see, this is what God is doing to me. He knows where they are. I don't know where they are. What does he have against me? We are waiting to mistrust him in our lives. That's our knee-jerk reaction. That's the first step that comes out of a sick, self-deceived heart. In fact, Oswald Chambers said that every sin is rooted in the suspicion that God withholds something good from us. That's hard to argue with. I'm walking through my life suspecting that there are good things to be had that could be mine and should be mine, but God is withholding those very things from me. Let's table toilet seats and works righteousness for a minute And let's get back to the context of Jeremiah 17 and understand exactly what's being said. Verse 7, 
Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. We have never, ever once in this chapter graduated from faith. We don't move from trusting in the Lord in verse 7 all of a sudden to proving our worth in verse 8. Verse 10, it's verse 8 that makes the seamless transition for us. God, for the one who trusts in him and puts their faith in him, he plants us like a tree by streams of water. He feeds us, he supplies us, he tends to us, and he bears the good fruit in our lives that he's looking for. In Christ, God judges us on the basis of himself and what he has performed in us. That'd be good enough to hear from verse 7, but there's actually more. There's more throughout this chapter. I just want to finish with one in verse 12. For the believer, God's throne is not a seat of judgment to be afraid of, but what does he call it in verse 12? The place of our sanctuary. When I stand before God and his throne, according to the prophet, I find the place of our sanctuary, a place of safety. Christian, when you think about God's dwelling place in heaven, when you think about him seated on his throne, we are to recall to mind the sweet things we heard from the book of Hebrews that Jesus was made like us in every respect to become a faithful and merciful high priest. Hebrews 2 is saying that Jesus understands Jeremiah chapter 17. Jesus understands what it is to have a heart of flesh that confuses and deceives us. But Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 6, has entered into the holy place beyond the curtain and he has paid for the sins that we can see and he has paid for the sins that we can't see. He's paid for the fruit and he has paid for the root. And now, right now, in God's presence, in that throne room, Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. Even now, even in the moments we are deceiving ourselves. Jeremiah, when he spoke verse 12, he spoke far more than he could have possibly known. That the throne room of God is the sanctuary of safety for the believer. The goal is clear. Our hearts are absolutely not But God's throne room sanctuary makes it so in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we want to pray just a few verses later in Jeremiah 17, 14. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Amen.